you're listening to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast. I'm your host, David Bernard, and with me as always, Jacob Eiding. Hi, Jacob. Hi, David. Happy to be here. <laughs> you sound thrilled. I am legitimately happy to be here. This it's has been the, a busy the, few months. The, the lightest hour of my day. I love it. <laughs> All right. Our guest today is Eric Owens. Since founding App Business Brokers in 2003, Eric has brokered the sale of hundreds of internet businesses and mobile apps. Those 18 plus years of experience make Eric one of the foremost experts on helping small bootstrap entrepreneurs find qualified buyers and negotiate the sale. Hey, Eric. Nice to have you on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah. So, Eric, you, you and I go fairly far back um, these days anyways. Yeah. I've been making a lot of new friends in the, in the app space the past few years. But, man, we first worked together like in 2014 or 15 or something. So Eric, Eric helped me sell uh, my Mirror app. We listed a couple of other apps for sale that, that things changed and we didn't end up selling. But... Um, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit, uh, and we, we can get into kind of my part of the story later, but why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of, you started this in 2003 with internet businesses, and then you kind of jumped into apps. Uh, how, how did that, uh, how'd that go? Yeah, definitely. Like one of those things where I never intended to get into uh, doing business brokering, just kind of saw an <laughs> opportunity and, and fell into it where uh, I'd always wanted to have my own business as a kid. Thought I was going to have like a manufacturing business to be like one of my heroes from like, you know, the Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand books, uh, <laughs> Atlas Shrugged, that kind of stuff. And then I uh, did manufacturing stuff for a few years and saw a bunch of stuff going to Mexico and China. It was like, man, there's got to be a way easier way to make business or to do business than manufacturing. And back that was like 97 to 2002 kind of time frame and just started looking on the internet and uh, ended up teaming up with a couple of guys. We started an info, uh, internet marketing, like info publishing type of company, publishing stuff for like authors and experts. And then uh, had a couple small tax software websites that I created with another partner. And uh, we were in those for a couple of years and they, uh, they would just spit out cash, like not a ton, but you know, a little bit of money every month, not enough for either of us to live on. But, uh, and then one day my partner and then I was like, he wanted to buy a new car, nice new Mercedes. I was buying a new house. So he's like, maybe we can sell these. And, uh, so took us a few months to figure out how to do it, but we ended up uh, selling those off. And, uh, we both made like more money in a day than either of us had made in a year before. So that was the big moment for me. I'm like, okay, maybe there's something to this. Like maybe people actually pay for these internet businesses and, uh, Back then, knew a bunch of like internet marketing guys from the early internet events, and uh, just started lining up deals. That's awesome. So, so you went from selling your app to then, gosh, back in like 2003, I imagine there weren't like a lot of people doing. I mean, there's still not like a lot of people doing app brokerage and stuff like that. It's like once you get to a certain size, like PE firms, investment bankers, you know, folks like that help you through the process. But it's like there's you feel kind of an interesting niche on the kind of like whole segment before you get to that level where it's even worth talking to an investment bank or PE firm. So in 2003, were you kind of like one of the few people in the space and, and how'd you kind of build up that business? 
Yeah, back then it was just, we were doing internet businesses. And then back, uh, I guess it was probably like about 10 years or so ago, uh, maybe even 2009, uh, where our first app client was a, a guy named Chad Moretta, who uh, he actually hit me up like one month and was like, hey, I have this app. It's making like 30 grand a month in revenue. I'd like to sell it. And I was like, no way, man. It's only got a year of history. App stores new. Mm. Nobody's going to want to buy this. You know, he hit me up the next month and was like, oh, we're doing like 40 grand a month. And then the next month, 60 grand a month. I'm like, okay, maybe there's something to these apps. So he kind of harassed me into listing it. And uh, <laughs> we we listed that one for him. And what did he know that to sell that app? Like, <laughs> exactly. that, that exactly. feels like something you yeah. should hold. Uh, <laughs> but but if it's experience, I, I, I mean, I don't know what the experience was further, but the, uh, back then before subscriptions, uh, those revenue trajectories were never super stable, <laughs> right? No, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think he had an inkling that it might not continue on that trend forever. But uh, yeah, interesting. The guy that bought it, I think, got like a really fast ROI on it, though. So it worked out well for everybody. I mean, there were a lot fewer fewer apps in two thousand nine, right? So like, yeah. <laughs> it was it was easier to get to bigger numbers in some ways. Let's jump into this uh, kind of the whole process. So uh, I wrote a blog post not long ago, and we'll we'll link to it in the sh- in the show notes. But uh, a lot of people have been reading that post and asking me questions. Uh, and so I wanted to have you on the podcast to kind of like just talk through a lot of what I, you know, glossed over in the blog post. So, so when you're starting out thinking like, wow, I, I maybe have an asset here, you know, it's making a few grand a month or it's making 50 grand a month. But before we get into like the, the valuations, like I'm, I'm sure you see a breadth of like motivations to sell. Can you talk me through like some of your, um, yeah, I know you can't, you don't want to violate client confidentiality or anything, but in generalities, you know, what do you see on the gamut of, you know, why people decide to sell an app? Yeah. I think one of the biggest motivations we see across the board is like a lot of our clients tend to be younger guys that I would say definitely are serial entrepreneur type of people, at least psychological profile wise, where really good (laughs) at starting something good at getting it going. uh, And then, yeah, they kind of tap out in terms of wanting to grow something further or bigger or turn it into more of like a real business. Uh, and usually along the way, they come up with some idea for something, a you know, way bigger idea uh, that, that they think at least is going to make them way more money than what they're currently doing. Uh, and lots of times their current app or business is their only asset. So they look to sell it off, just like self-fund their next thing. Um, that's been the biggest motivation we've seen. And the other one has been like some of our seller clients, just like they want to kind of take some money off the table and do other investments, whether it's, uh, well, historically it's been real estate nowadays, certainly you know, cryptocurrency type of stuff has been a motivating factor for some people who are like cash out, put money into that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I, you know, w- one of the motivations for me, I, I mean, it's kind of a lesser motivation, but was the tax implications, like, you know, having a 15% uh, capital gain, long-term capital gains tax on the assets, which, you know, I, I talked to my accountant before I, I, or during the process of selling my first app. And I was like, hey, that's pretty nice. Um, does that come up much with, with your clients? Uh, not a ton, except for people in California. Uh, yeah, that's a special concern for some people out there, especially if, you know, they're physically located there, their business is there, and then they're, they kind of face down the, they're on the flip side of that, I guess. So like having the taxes of both capital gains and then state tax stuff uh, right. to deal with. We've been working with some like tax attorney people to help get some other things in place for people that do want to maximize tax savings uh, right. when they do go to sell. 
uh, especially as that changes, you know, with different people in, in the administration in the U.S. at least. Um, what um, what are some of the motivations on the on the buy side? So, like, I can understand, you know, I've had businesses in the past where, yeah, you get past this hump and you're just like, okay, my inspiration is a little like lacking, and maybe I don't want, you know, I want to do something else. I I've, I've traditionally and like this uh, <laughs> scary for revenue cap fans out there. It's not going to happen here, but. <laughs> uh, uh, I've traditionally just like, like forgot about them and then they just like die slowly. But like, <clears throat> but I'm kind of curious, like what is like the, uh, yeah, like somebody looking to, I mean, I guess you were on that other buy side as well, but like, what are some of the motivations for people that want to pick these up? Right. Yeah, definitely. So the buyers of work would tend to fall in like a couple of different categories. There's some that are just individuals who uh, look at these almost as like lifestyle cash flow kind of businesses where, yeah, they might be able to take it and be able to have their own business where they can travel, live anywhere, do that kind of thing. Uh, so location independent type business. And mm-hmm. then uh, other people that we've probably done the most deals with have been either like individuals or small investor groups where they just buy these things up almost like they're their own little oil wells where mm-hmm. they just sit there and make money and with relatively low maintenance for most of the apps that they buy. Um, and then the past couple of years has definitely been bigger players, whether it's been like public companies or just larger companies that have been buying them up. So the larger companies, they seem to just be mostly focused on the user base. Like the revenue is great, uh, but they're focused on the user base. And then uh, the first and second groups are definitely, they're the kind of people where they've probably been successful as something else in their career or some other business thing. And uh, they look at the app stuff as like, they're usually older. So they look at the app mm. stuff a little bit as like voodoo where like them <laughs> going and doing it themselves is like never going to happen. So mm-hmm. uh, they'd rather just buy something that's up and going and has you know, some of these proven history behind it that they can maybe take yeah. and either run as an investment or do something else with it. It's a way, it's a way into an asset class that you have no idea how to create yourself, right? Um, yeah. Which, which which is interesting. Well, one of the interesting things, and you and I were talking about it just before we, we started the podcast, but um, so I sold my uh, Mirror app, um, which was a total fluke of an app. Like, People search for Mirror on the App Store, and and I like to think I created a good experience around. You know, it uses a front-facing camera. You can tap to pause. You can share. You can save it. But it was just a total fluke of an app that just organically was getting four or five thousand downloads a day. And over time, I worked on monetization and showed ads and experimented with all the all that kind of stuff. But when I sold it, you know, I was very much in the like take money off the table camp of uh, we had a baby coming and like, you know, being a bootstrapped indie for so long, you know, had tax bills to pay and stuff like that. So it was like a really nice, like get me over the hump. But then, um, you know, I reconnected with the buyer, gosh, like two years later and he had barely touched it for two years and it kept making about the same amount of money. And so, you know, looking back, I could have waited six months, pocketed another, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, sold it for the same amount of money or waited a year and pocketed tens of thousands of dollars. I, I, I felt good about kind of de-risking and, and taking that money off the table. So I, I don't have any huge regrets, but, um, but I'm curious, like, is that something, you know, you see, is that, is that typically what people are looking for in an investment? Or do you have a lot of kind of like, fixer-upper apps where people buy them and then really heavily optimize them? Uh, yeah, we definitely have some buyers who specifically look for that, for the fixer-upper scenarios where like a lot of our app seller clients, like they do get 
good at like one, you know, one way of generating app downloads and then one way of monetizing where someone else might look at it and go like, oh, well, we've had some of our past app seller clients now where they'll buy up apps that are non-subscription based and turn them into subscription apps. Like that's all they look for all day long. Just apps that are getting good downloads. there are tools can... out there that will make that easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably something worth Googling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so those guys look for the fixer upper stuff. I think the more uh, the people that aren't already experienced in the space stuff, you'll look at more like just the the kind of cash flow investment thing where it just spits out cash. Uh, where gotcha. you know, you, your app in particular, I think, was a great one where it did really consistent revenue. We see many more apps that go up and down. You know, whether it's month to month yeah. or quarter to quarter, quite a bit. So, do you see any patterns in that? As far as um, you know, my app was heavily organic uh, downloads. So, and, and those, you know, it was at the top of the, the search for mirror. And I think that was, you know, that was, I didn't do any paid advertising. So I know that was driving most of the downloads with people searching for that very specific thing. Is it, are there uh, patterns in kind of what is, is more sustainable after purchase or, and what's not? Uh, and not that I've really seen in particular. Uh, I think just most of the buyers are smart. They have some kind of plan that they're going to put in place for it, whether it's to you know, keep the, the ASO stuff going or to add in some paid user acquisition. Uh, I think smart buyers will have some plan of attack for that, for sure, just because the space does change. So. David, to your your point about like, if you could have just held and it would have generated another XK for you, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean that's the, that's the whole thing about help, hold versus sell, right? I mean, it's all... Yep. It's all a risk slash like timing game, and you know, and then I think that's where these these things that you can't put a dollar value on become really important, like opportunity costs. Like, are you doing what you want to be doing with your life? Like, are there things other things you'd rather, you know, or or you know, focus things that are like harder to put a dollar value on. You have to like really trust that because if you like, yeah, I mean, I I would feel like in most cases, unless you know an app is going to go to zero, like you're probably selling you're always probably selling too soon right if your timeline is infinite you should probably just never and this is not great for your business eric so sorry but like (laughs) you probably just never sell but that's just not how life works right like sometimes you need to sometimes you want to sometimes you need to like change and yeah and it it was a huge de-stressor for me going into the birth of our fourth child which that in and of itself is a bit crazy (laughs) but yeah i mean it's like you know not having that you know uh, not having the money come in monthly, but having a big pile of cash sitting in the bank was also was also not huge. having to worry about it anymore, right? Like you yeah. gotta like think about the time you got back, like without having this thing on your plate, right? So I don't know. I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, uh, retroactively quarterback it too hard, David. No, 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 that's what I was saying. I don't. <laughs> I don't regret it at all. I, it was. It's just interesting to think how that could have played out. But I, yeah, I don't regret it. It was a. It was a good time. Um, reinvested that in, in in my other apps or a lot of it. <laughs> so and then you just get to, gotta believe that that was worth. Yeah, net better, right? <laughs> net better. So one thing I did want to touch on real quick in in talking through this kind of whole process. So we talked motivation. On iOS, there are some limitations. Are, are you up on the latest on, on these iOS limitations? I know like in the past, iCloud, Passbook, Sign In with Apple, and Catalyst were all like just blockers. Like if you have that, you have to sell the whole company and the whole App Store account versus being able to transfer the app from one account. Have you run into this uh, much and and had to sell whole businesses because of it? And and uh, yeah, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that is one that like it was weird. We didn't even know 
that that was an issue really until we uh, we sold an app to uh, uh, IEC Applon uh, back. I can't remember how many years ago it was now. Where like the guy had the seller had two apps, and then uh, one of them we went to transfer and like had some weird iCloud entitlement thing. Never used it, but it was somewhere in the yeah. code, so I like, couldn't transfer that one. Uh, luckily, it wasn't the main app, and they just killed it off. They didn't really care about it anyways. Uh, but now we check and make sure we're going into it. Like uh, people do some more due diligence on that and make sure that it is all, all okay to transfer. Uh, cause it seems like as of right now, those are at least the first three are an issue. The catalyst one we haven't really run into on our end, but the, uh, the other three definitely still an issue where, like you said, it's not, doesn't make it impossible, but does throw some extra hurdles into the mix where, uh, like you said, you got to sell the whole developer account and company. So do it as like a entity deal, not an asset based deal. And um, that's how we used to have, have to do all the app deals was all entity deals. Were transfers added later, like to that? Yeah. Connect? Yeah. But it was, it was fairly early. I mean, it was like, because I sold Gas Cabby in 2013. And I know the process at that point had, had been introduced and, and battle tested, but that was five years probably, in. Probably so, it was so until it was Apple like bought, bought an app or something like this. Like, <laughs> yeah, we, we went through a legal battle with them, with one buyer, with Apple, uh, where at least I don't know that we were the catalyst for them doing that, but it did seem like three, four, six months after that, than when they did it, where we found like a legal loophole where forget the exact terminology, but basically allowed like the person to not do an entity deal, but basically take over the developer account and like insert mm. their name into it where Apple couldn't fight it, but they didn't like it either. So right. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Are there any limitations like that on Android? No, not that we've seen. Like uh there's a couple minor things on their end, like just really basic stuff, but this is this is the stuff that Apple like this is these these like transfer iCloud passbook stuff is sitting in some product managers like roadmap is like <laughs> a P3 for like years. And like what happens in the meantime is like an entire industry like forms and like you know builds these like best practices around like just some like arbitrary like product limitation and then one day it'll be fixed uh you know we'll have some WWDC and they'll announce that like you can transfer apps with iCloud now. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, it's just maddening. Right. And, and it's like the stuff that you wouldn't know, like what an, what a capricious and arbitrary thing to screw up. Right. Like especially <laughs> for the like user who didn't even know that or didn't even use iCloud. Right. They were like, Oh, let me check this entitlement. Like, let me try it. And then like, didn't use it. Right. So there's really, it, really no reason. And it's like, Oh yeah, sorry. We've closed off an entire like business maneuver from you for no point at all. Sucks. Yeah. The stress that it caused that, uh, that developer or seller client for at least like a day was, uh, oh, no <laughs> kidding. Took, like, years off of his life. He was worried his whole deal was going to die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Over some, Oh my God. Yeah. Don't even. Uh, speaking of arbitrary limitations, I did, I want to get into like valuations, but, um, to preface that, have, what have you been seeing around this uh, app, the small business program, um, where Apple is now, if you make under a million dollars, you get a 15% cut instead of 30. But then if you have an entity transfer, any form of ownership transfer, an app transfer from one account to another, um, it's like there's all this like fine print around any form of app transfer kicks you right back up to the 30%. Have you done any deals um, since this happened or or done any valuations where you take this into account? 
we've done some deals, uh, none where the uh, the sellers had that in place already. So it hasn't like affected them getting to learn. It has affected a couple of our clients where like they moved forward and did that. And then uh, with their higher expectations, we weren't able to get a deal done for them. Just the buyers right. weren't uh, weren't valuing it at the same level that they were that, uh, that discount, the 15%. So mm. uh so it's affected it more that way. And uh, I, mean, I think it's great for small developers, you know, less, uh, the more money they can put in their pockets, more creative stuff they can do with it. So yeah, more you can build. So, so you would say that, that for most people in the program, because most of the buyers, well, cause you have to transfer the app. So, so really you just have to take not what you're actually making, but, but, but calculate the valuation based on the 30% take rate, not the 15% take rate, except for if you're a subscription app and you have people past the one year where you are getting 15% take rate. So then I, I, is, I guess the, uh, the, uh, the revenue calculations get a little more complicated, but then the valuations, it's like Apple did this favor for your cash flow temporarily as an indie developer but it doesn't really increase the value of your asset. Your asset's basically the same value as it was before they started the program. I mean, maybe backing up a little bit, Eric, like what's like when you like come at an asset to, to help, help a seller come up with a valuation, like what's your process? Yeah, so I'm an engineer by background. I wish it was all science, but it's unfortunately <laughs> part art, part science, and uh, where we almost have to look at it. And like, so we'll look at the uh, the trends for the revenue and the user base, so well, revenue and profit. Uh, if someone's doing a bunch of paid user acquisition or anything, so revenue, profit, and then the user base trends. Those are the things that the buyers are looking heavily on. Um, and then the rest of it is just kind of supporting factors in terms of like the quality of the app. Cause you know, some people have stuff that makes money, but it's not, you know, not really <laughs> all that great of a product necessarily. Uh, and then uh, the subscription factor that's been the other game changer has been like being able to uh, get higher valuations for anything subscription based. Um, and that's one trend that you know, should continue. So yeah. Do you, is there like a rough rule of thumb on multiples? Like, yeah, we still get buyers that like so typically somewhere between like two and three and a half times what the uh, the yearly profit looks like. And uh, it was one nice thing with apps. A lot of them end up being so high margin that's pretty yeah. close between revenue. Doing, and, unless your leverage on user acquisition revenue and profit are usually pretty close. Um, yeah, and that's interesting though. I mean, like, I guess, and then I guess, like, as a growth factor, that will increase that. That you know, if 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 you say that your revenue is growing two x every year or something like that, you can you can add some padding onto that multiple, I would suppose. Yeah, definitely. Like we just got one done too. It was like at four and a half times where the buyer just really wanted the uh, the user base and uh, yeah, not a huge deal, but uh, still good good valuation multiple for the seller. So mm. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, so you were talking about the uh, subscription apps um, seeing a higher valuation. Like, how 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 does that factor in? Like, is it a you know an extra one x like it would typically sell for two and a half x, and then you're selling for three and a half times, um, or, or how does that typically factor in? Yeah, I'd say pretty much as a pretty good ballpark. It's like about a one times yearly type of bump to it, uh, and then some that would probably have been even higher than that. Where yeah maybe they would have been done at like one and a half if it wasn't for the subscription part, but with the subscription been able to get it uh, closer to like three and a half. So 
I think that's just from the buyer side. I mean, it really any business with, with any kind of subscription revenue is always going to sell for higher, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, buyers love that like for sure. It's like the one, the one move you can make in any business that will increase the valuation is add some kind of subscription <laughs> revenue. Like, I mean, describing their, their motivations, right. That like totally lines up, you know, if people are looking for an asset, that's a little more like maintenance mode, a little more set and forget, like cash flow, then subscription is totally there. Also, it just like, yeah, just, you know, if you think of it in terms of like funnel conversion and then like ROI for each acquisition, subscription just increases that, right? So um, yeah, it, it's it's a very, very good alignment. I, I mean, if you like SaaS, it's kind of interesting, like, I don't know, in SaaS, like public SaaS and stuff, you hear usually higher multiples than that, um, which I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just like with, there's a lot more proven public company assets that are trading at those multiples that so people are willing to pay a little bit more. Um, but it's not super far away, right? Some of those SaaS ones, I think too, they're a little more uh, like B2B. So like any yeah. of our, our, our B2B enterprise type SaaS deals we've done have always been way higher multiples for sure than uh, than anything. That's interesting. I guess it's just the sticky, it's, it's a stickier, like more stable. I mean, even with David, your mirror app, like, it's great and it's good, but like it's one app yeah. store change away from like that, yeah. right? Uh, potentially versus a B2B thing is usually has a lot more, uh, is a lot more de-risked in terms of like market shifts. Yeah, durability. And, yeah. Have you done any deals on where there were more kind of strategic acquisitions where it was like a 10x multiple where um, there was something very strategic about the app and the reason the buyer was was purchasing it? Not too many. Uh, we've floated some out there before, and uh, definitely can be challenging to like find the right mix of buyer and valuation on that. Uh, there have been a couple though, like over the years on uh, some of the early app deals we did. Like there was one of them, I think, like technically sold at like twenty four times revenue type of multiple, just because the buyers wanted the, some of the technology that was involved with it, and really it's always more like an acquire too. Like one of the founders was going to work with them, like. Multiple is not really the metric, right? Exactly. <laughs> You're buying like a technology yeah. asset and a team, and and then that's a separate, it's a separate way of valuing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, um, just real quick on the on the kind of documentation side, I remember I had to fill out a pretty sophisticated uh, spreadsheet with all my expenses and revenue and uh, all the different line items. Um, and then I would imagine with a subscription app, you're filling out like your are uh, buyers looking at like your churn and things like that. So what kind of documentation are you looking for these days? Yeah, definitely. Pretty much the same set. Uh, heavily uh, look at the profit and loss theme and stuff. If a lot of the app sellers we have don't necessarily have one. So uh, we're moving our model a little bit <laughs> over the next year or two to like work with people a little more early on before they sell. So we can get some of that stuff in place to help increase valuation and, and odds of selling successfully. Uh, right. That part, I think, is going to continue to be more and more important is in this space. Like internet businesses have gotten relatively sophisticated enough where now, you know, a lot of people have bookkeepers or people handling yeah. their financials and accountants. A lot of our app seller clients don't, but uh, it's really smart to you like, uh, to do that stuff not very sexy or fun, but when you go to sell, like if you have all those, if you have all that stuff in place, it opens up the doors for a lot of other buyers. And then uh, we got our first SBA deal done for an app. I think it was last, like, well, February, actually, before the pandemic hit. Uh, so it was the first, we've done SBA deals for internet business, but it was the first one for an app we'd ever done. And uh, 
that one, you know, you need tax returns in place and you need the profit and loss statement stuff in place just to, because then you're playing the the bank's game and you got to have that documentation. Yeah. Um, so having it opens up more doors and opportunities. If you don't have it, you can still sell. Just uh, it takes a little work. bit more work to get in yeah. place. Right. You, you and I have talked about this before, but um, if it's like a, a solo entrepreneur who's a developer themselves and they're putting 20 hours a week into it, Versus like, you know, if, if you're hiring outside developer, that would typically be co- counted as like uh, an expense against the revenue when calculating profit. How, how do people typically look at that kind of like owner investment of time in, in trying to calculate the profit? Yeah, definitely buyers do factor that in for sure. Because uh, they look at it as like, okay, you know, like it's the same thing as like, you know, if someone, I guess, built their own house, like, uh or build an office building, you know, someone's got to maintain it going forward. And then, uh, yeah, buyers do factor that in. Uh, sometimes is a dance of like, you know, a little bit of doing a dance of like, okay, so if the owner put an X amount of hours at, you know, some hourly rate, you know, what's that look like? Right. I think on the buyer side, they're usually more wanting to make sure that like moving forward, they can maintain you know, some form of good economics there where right. they're not going to be having to hire a developer at a much higher rate than the owner was doing the work at. Yeah. Has that, has that been surprising to some of your sellers? Like, you know, well, Hey, I'm making, you know, 20 grand a month and like I have zero expenses. And then it's like, they were putting in 60 hours a week and needed that to like keep the app moving forward. And then they just take a big haircut on the valuation. Uh, not too often. It's been more, uh, where luckily I think those ones, they didn't put a bunch of time into it. Like it was more low development type of apps. Uh, but we have one deal right now where that definitely has been a factor where the owner does work on it full time and, uh, and buyers are looking at it as like, you know, they got to pay a developer, like, you know, a good chunk of money to keep that kind of work going. So. Yeah. makes sense. So, so after you've, uh, um, decided you want to sell an app, you've, uh, come up with evaluation and you're, you're super helpful on that, by the way. Um, like, it, you know, when I've gone to Eric with my apps and we've talked through the valuation stuff, I, you know, it was super helpful to get a realistic understanding of, of what the asset was really worth versus pie in the sky, you know, hopes. <laughs> but anyway, so you've, you've, you know, I mean, established- that's, the, that's the value of, of brokerages, right? Like your, your ears to the market, you know, more or less like what somebody might actually pay for something because like, as much as we can sit here and be like, well, this is the, the whatever, the multiple and the blah, 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 it doesn't matter until somebody's like, yes, I will pay that price, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> so so now we've uh, gone through all the documentation um, and listed the app for sale. How, where do you find buyers? And and this is something that's, that's really fascinating to me. I'm actually about to sell a, my house and the market's super hot here. So people are coming, but the realtor wants to like list it for three days and then accept offers, and then like accept an offer. And I was like, well, I'm limiting the pool to the number of people who happen to be shopping for a house that weekend versus like having it listed for a few weeks. And, you know, the market's really different. But like with apps, it's like the market is in part who sees it. So a publicly traded company, it's like, you know, the the, the, the market is anybody in the world who's you know, buying stock with, with an app you know, defining the value and finding a buyer involves, you know, defining this market and then getting it in front of them. So how do you, how do you find people? How do you market um, apps to, to get the most people interested to find the true market value? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, we rely heavily on our in-house database that we build up over the years. I think it's like over 13,000 buyers now. So we wow. we market heavily to them. And then we have like a VIP group within that where those are people we've done deals with or uh, people that are very experienced on, uh, on doing deals. So we'll go hit those people up first just to see if we get some good motivating, you know, all cash kind of offers that meet the seller's expectations. And then uh, if there's not any quick hits there, then we'll go and we do stuff like we listen on our website and we go run some paid advertising different places. And there's uh, there's some different like business for sale listing type of websites that do bring in good targeted buyer leads for us. And then, but heavily on our in-house, in-house database is where that comes from uh, in terms of the, the action and the deals that we close. And then the other thing is, we'll uh, some apps can lend themselves to like going out and at least us doing some initial strategic buyer outreach to be like, hey, maybe there is a good buyer in the market for this kind of app that would pay a higher premium for it. Um, so if the app kind of justifies that, where it's a high quality app and might have value up beyond just the revenue or the user base, then we'll go uh, go test out that method as well. Uh, the one silver lining of this whole pandemic stuff has been we've seen an influx of buyers both for apps and internet businesses just people who used to look at offline assets that now see the power in any kind of digital asset that's not dependent upon retail or local traffic so i think that, be risks for that next pandemic then right yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know i've seen and and um and wrote about these in in that blog post i mentioned earlier that there are some companies like flippa um, there's some kind of conglomerates that that have websites like we'll buy your app, um, you know. So so there are other. <laughs> it's like the signs on the highway. They're like we buy houses. <laughs> like just start throwing those. That's how you know this whole thing will jump the shark. Is when I'm driving down the highway and I see we buy apps. Yeah. Call, <laughs> call this number. Um, <laughs> and, and you're obviously a bit biased being being a broker yourself and and everything but are there any horror stories or any any things you would say to watch out for if somebody does want to go the kind of self-listed route on flippa or or you know to to sell direct to some of these companies that buy apps yeah so like that can work out great like sometimes you know somebody gets in a scenario where like they just really need to sell their app like right away for you know they have some pressing concern on their end in those cases i always am like yes you know just go do it on your own if you have the the knowledge and skills to do that uh for us like we've always taken kind of like a consultory advisory type of approach where we're always looking for the best outcome for every single client that comes through the door and although we represent seller clients we also have to look out for the buyer's best interest. You know, we like to have repeat clients and things like that. So we're not looking to just make a sale, looking to, you know, create a good relationship and connection with people. Um, on the seller side, like people don't necessarily realize this going into it, but like when they someone goes and sell, like their life is transformed in some way, even if it's a small way where new opportunities are opened up for them, you know, new ideas, different things they can take advantage of. Where I'm always like, it's worth taking it seriously. Like you don't have some people don't have that many kind of capital events in their life where they like go and sell something for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So it's it's usually worth it if you're not in like an urgent need to sell to you know check it out and talk to someone like us and see, you know how can you maximize your valuation and you know, is it the right time to sell or should you get other things in place before you go and sell? Uh, Cause some places like Flippa can be great. There can be great buyers on there. Other times you can go and just waste hours of your time, which you know, yeah. 
opportunity yeah. cost of that, of course. And then uh, some of the we buy app people are on our buyers list and we, you know, we hit them up. The only danger there I would say is like, just make sure that you're getting a price that you want and not one that you get pressured into taking. Uh, some of those people use strategies intact. There's just like people who buy, you know, buy houses where, you know, kind of if you have a rundown house, you need to sell fast. Someone makes you an all cash offer. You may sell for way under market value. So, right. yeah, I mean, as, as this is from experiences in my personal life and, you know, maybe even a little bit in the business side, I've been, uh, solidly in the camp of like, Oh, I can just do this myself. I'll just list it, whatever. <laughs> I'll just do things like cars and other things like this. And, uh, I, as I get later in my life, realizing like brokers are amazing, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like think about it as an app developer, you spend 99% of your time being an app developer. Right. And then you have this 1% critical action, which is the sell. And you're going to go in there, most likely the buy side of that, they're going to be more experienced than you. So like, you know, it's probably not the first app they're buying, but it might be the first app you're selling. So to go into that with like that total asymmetry of experience, like it's very likely you're not going to get to the right. I'm just like pumping your your business here, Eric. But like, (laughs) uh, uh, it's really useful to have somebody on your side who's just like done this before, can like tell you, you know, what you're doing that's wrong, what you're doing that's right. And then also just like, you know, um, and you know, I, 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 I presume you guys work on fees, right? Like, so you just take a, right. a, a fee of the sell. So like typically it, it can make you like rankle a little bit, like, Oh, I gotta like, I give a percent or whatever. And that percentage can get quite big as, as like the value gets big, but like, you're more likely to get taken right? <laughs> yeah. for like that percentage, I think in a lot of cases. So like, yeah, I think unless like, I, I mean, I, I don't have enough experience to recommend one way or another, but I, I will say that like, unless, unless you, if you're, if you're an inexperienced seller of something, get somebody to help you out. <laughs> like yeah. it usually comes out in, in the positive for you. And part of the reason I was bringing up the the market side of things too, is like, you know, I, I forget exactly what I paid Eric. It was probably 20 or 30 grand. Um, but to me, I, I saw it as worth every penny because he helped bring the market that got the highest and best value of the app. So if I'd have gone out and like tweeted that I was selling it or like tried to reach out to a few of these we buy app places, you know, I may have gotten an offer here or there. I may have gotten a low ball. I may have gotten whatever. Uh, you know, I, I think looking back on that process that having access to that pool of buyers and then having Eric's experience, like helping me walk through it, I think it made up the whatever I paid him in in the valuation that I got in the sale. And not to mention like the time investment it would take you to like sit yeah. through all those offers, like all this stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and then and then lastly, like and I'm just probably taking the words out of your mouth here, Eric, but I think one of the benefits <laughs> for me when I work with a broker is to be like emotionally distant, right? I think it's one of the big values. If you have a broker who's just like, hey, like I don't really care about your, I mean, I do, but like <laughs> I don't love it like you love it, right? So I can like kind of treat it a little bit arm's length and kind of like help you think through things logically versus David, you know, you get some crazy bubble offer on your bait, you know, this thing you love, like it's going <laughs> to affect your psychology and you're going to yep. do something stupid. Right. Which I think is why, yeah, there's a, a, just lots of reasons to have a third party involved to help you out. Yep. Yeah. That, that emotional, you know, non-attachment part is huge, especially, you know, you guys are experienced business wise when it comes to negotiation, like all the buyers that we have, you know, if they're individuals, like I said, these, you've been successful in their career or an investor or whatever, where they are good at negotiating. And, uh, you know, as a broker, we can kind of see through people's negotiation tactics and, You've uh, seen it before, right? 
Right, exactly. Uh, where you can ride the roller coaster, where if you're doing it yourself, there's always ups and downs of getting a deal done, where almost every deal at some point seems like it's not going to happen or it might fall apart, whereas the broker can just hold that together and see it through to the end. How do you work on like your fiduciary duties? Like I know in real estate, there's you know very clear, like you have a buyer rep and a seller rep, and the buyer rep has fiduciary duties to the buyer and the seller to the seller. And then uh, in real estate, at least here in Texas, I, I used to, um, my family's in real estate. So um, I actually, I have a real estate broker's license. It's expired, but I went through all the classes and I've negotiated all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so, so when you have, uh, you can do a dual representation, but then there's like very specific kind of um, rules and regulations around that. Uh, so you're not favoring the seller or favoring the buyer in the transaction. Um, so how do, how do you navigate these tricky kind of fiduciary duty kind of things? Yeah. So in RN, we almost exclusively do seller side listing engagements. Once in a while, we'll represent a buyer. Uh, and in those cases, we're usually going out and sourcing deals specific to them. Like if someone wanted, uh, like right now, we have a buyer client who's looking to buy dating apps. So we're going out and we're just representing them as a, as a buyer's agent. And then we're very clear with sellers. Like we're... You know, right up front, tell them that they represent the buyer and not them. And then uh, on the seller side, as we get buyers come through our process, like all of our NDAs and stuff and things that they sign, make it clear that we're representing the seller and not them. And uh, that way, people don't get confused. Like I said, we still got to make good deals happen. But uh, when it comes down to, like you said, fiduciary wise, we're representing the seller. So. Right. But you still, you know, I mean, you still have your your stable of of buyers, right? You need to like, <laughs> not like totally like, but I mean, that's often how you drive to a good deal, right? This is like, you got to leave a little bit of meat on the bone for both parties or, or it's just usually not going to be a great outcome. Right. So yeah. 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 Sometimes there's lining up motivations too, or sometimes sellers are just motivated to get a deal in fast and a buyer is, you know, it's a good deal scenario buyer where it can be a good fit. Any specific, um, Things you've seen kind of go sideways or blow up deals in the negotiation process? Kind of things to watch out for in that uh, get a, an offer or like a lowball offer. And, you know, I, I think this happened with you and I where I got a lowball offer. I was really offended and then like was like, <laughs> ah, forget this guy. Luckily, you had a emotionally modulating broker in the room. To I like- did. <laughs> and he got us to the deal. But any, any kind of anything to watch out for in the negotiation process? Yeah, that is one funny thing. There are always buyers who come through and make lowball offers. And I think uh, apps in particular where like, people do put their creativity into it, maybe a little bit more so than some other businesses where, you know, if it is your baby, like just be prepared. Someone's going to tell you your baby's ugly and point out every <laughs> single thing that's wrong with it. Like that's, I've seen some buyers that are hilarious too, where like they will point out, you know, the 99 things that are wrong with the app the day before they close on it. And then the day they close on it, it's like the best app in the history of the world. Like, <laughs> uh, that's, awesome. that's, that's the kind of stuff you learn, right? After you've been through a few of these, right? That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the one thing I, I would say is like another benefit working with the broker is where there are some buyers who like, they'll come through and make offers and then they'll get into due diligence and like magically things will pop up where stuff they really should have known ahead of time before even making an offer really but then they make a big issue out of it to try and get the seller to take a lower offer that's definitely a a game that some buyers like to play where they know going into it they're going to find something along the way that they can try to do to reduce the price on the seller i heard some horror stories on that end of somebody who is trying to sell direct to one of these companies that buys apps 
And it was like, came in with this big valuation, like, we love your app. And then it was like every next step in the process was just like, turn the screws, turn the screws, turn the screws, find some excuse, beat them up, you know? And it it was just like a, a really bad experience. And they didn't do the deal, so... Right. Yeah. Or some people, some sellers, like once they get into the process, it's like they just want to get a deal done. So you can sometimes people can take a deal that they don't really want, but just to get anything done where they're just like worn out, like, fine, I'll take it. Six weeks of due diligence will change anybody's mindset, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) We try to coach buyers now on apps where like the due diligence stuff that they should be looking at is relatively simple. Unless someone's doing like a ton of paid user acquisition or has super mm. complicated tech stuff on the back end. Like, you know, really it should be pretty simple for them to verify the the revenue numbers and if they do, do, need to do any code check kind of stuff. Like it's not complicated. Who does the due diligence? Is that done by the buyer or do they usually engage with somebody that specializes in this or? Yeah, pretty much the buyer uh, or there are like some teams that are due diligence outsource services that are starting to do it. Like there's Centurica for, they do more internet business stuff, uh, but mm-hmm. they have done some app work with us. Uh, Is there usually a, a legal side to it? Do you have a lawyer involved to like sign on and off on everything or is it pretty standard that you don't need that? Uh, I always recommend sellers have an attorney involved, at least like once we get a buyer in motion, uh, once we get to that stage, just to look over any agreements and make sure that it fits for whatever their overall business and personal interests are. Most of the app deals we do are pretty heavy cash based where it's not real complicated on the deal structure. So there's not a lot of like, not a ton. Yeah. Where there's not a a ton of back end obligations where people can get screwed over. Um, But still, it's worth it having an attorney look stuff over. If, uh, if buyers don't bring their own contract to the team, but we have... Uh, uh, I was going to ask, yeah, if you guys provide yeah. any like paperwork, like at least right. like, as a starting point. Yeah, I had I had a lawyer involved in all three of my exits. And I and again, it was kind of like the brokerage fee. It was like, you know, whatever it was, three to five grand. It wasn't, you know, huge, I think, on any of them, but it's worth every penny just to have somebody helping to dot the I's and cross the T's and like explain to me the kind of like long-term potential liability of different things. And so, yeah, I would definitely recommend if you're going to go down this route. Um, yeah, I guess it gets tougher. Like one of my apps, you know, sold for low tens of thousands of dollars and it was a much bigger percentage of the sale to have the lawyer involved in. Eric wasn't involved in that one. So I didn't have any brokerage fees, but I, I, that one actually was, was probably my least, the one I look back on and regret the most because it was like lower cash up front and there was an earnout and a more complex deal. And it just didn't, it just kind of went sideways after I sold and they didn't, you know, improve the app the way they said they were. And so I, you know, I've did not do, do well. It's, on your, that it's one. your mistake, David, for watching how it went after the sale. <laughs> like there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing good that comes out of that. What, well, what, what, what's your upside? <laughs> I, I had like, Man, I had like $80,000 of earnouts. And so it was like, I saw oh, that as like accounts receivable yeah. of like, this is going to come, this 80K is going to come in over the next few years. And I mean, it trickled in and I don't know, maybe I made 5K out of the 80 in the earnouts. And so that yeah. was a, it's a yeah. pretty bad experience. <laughs> um, yeah, tell, tell us about the, the closing process. So now, you know, you've got your buyer, you've negotiated the contract, you've, you know, signed a purchase agreement you know, one of the things I did really enjoy about working with you was the the escrow process. So tell us a little bit about the, the actual like closing process. 
Uh, yeah. So like almost of our, our, all of our deals that we use, at least on the smaller ones, if it's not you know, multiple millions of dollars, uh, there's some kind of escrow process in place. So for people that don't know what that is, just on or before closing day, buyer gets their funds into an escrow account. Either we have one that we use, if not, place like escrow.com where you can verify that the funds are there. And uh, and then once that's done, then you hand over whatever assets were detailed out in the purchase agreement. And uh, we like to create a quick like transition checklist nowadays to make sure everything, everyone's ready on both sides of the transfers. That way, ideally, it can all happen the same day. Worst case, you know, over a day or two, if there's any logistic type, de- type of delays. Uh, that way, our seller clients get their money, like, you know, same day or next day kind of scenario. And uh, and then, so yeah, once the assets are transferred, then sellers get paid their money. So that's always the fun day when everyone gets to celebrate. Yep. So Fun times. And then on um, what additional closing costs are, are there? I don't even remember. And it's been so so long. Um, so, so I paid your fee, I paid legal fees along the way. Are there any additional like closing costs to consider? Uh, not typically, uh, not for apps, at least there's, uh, yeah, if we do use a service like escrow.com, they have their own escrow fees on our end. We're usually just doing it like at our costs, you know, like whatever the wire fee costs are, uh, not a profit center for us. So, but escrow.com places like that, it can be like point, I think there's still 0.89% of whatever the the transaction is. So kind of worst case scenario could pay that much. If that, if we're using that, it's usually because the buyer wants to use it. And then we ask the, at least them to split the fees for that. So that makes sense. And then on your end, do you do you publish your brokerage rates, or is it kind of a, a case by case basis? Uh, case by case basis to some degree, uh, but generally uh, we do it where it's like if it's a deal that's two hundred under two hundred fifty thousand dollars, usually fifteen percent, and then two fifty to five hundred thousand dollars, twelve percent, and then five hundred thousand up to about two million, ten percent, and then uh, above that we use a different scale, but averages out around eight percent. So we always okay. like to look at it like make sure we're not pricing a deal out of the market just to like make a couple bucks. So mm-hmm. rather get good deals done. So. Yeah, and the sliding scale makes a lot of sense. And then on on so now you've sold the app and you've got the money in the bank. How I, I imagine there's kind of a whole range of of post close obligations from like I sold it and I'm done to like you know Aquahire where I'm like joining the company. So what's that kind of range and what do you typically see on kind of negotiated post close obligations and then how that actually plays out. Yeah, uh, I think part of it too is like making sure that, uh, like, when you're a seller, making sure you know going into it what you're cool with and what you're not. Uh, like, if someone's selling and knows already what they want to do with the next stage of their life, if they're you're selling for that kind of reason, then it's great because then you can negotiate any non-compete stuff. Make sure you're still free to do whatever you want to do next, and then also to make sure you're not going to get yourself in a scenario where you're dealing with a buyer that needs you to work with them full-time for a year or something like that versus like we sold a game uh, last year, actually our biggest game deal ever where the company is buying is a public company in Sweden where they're trying to roll up games and stuff, but they were very early stages on the tech side. So they only had a couple people on their team. So they needed to like hire the game designer from the, the seller side and have a product manager person that was going to work with them for a year so like the idea was part cash and part stock and part around a little more complicated, but at the same time, the buyer like needed to structure it that way to make sure they were going to get the resources they needed from the seller to keep it being successful. And uh, 
that was a scenario where seller was totally cool with it. Uh, so like I said, a matter of being clear on what you're able to do and willing to do for the buyer. And then on our end, we can negotiate with the buyer and make sure that they're very clear on that, what the expectations are. I, a lot of the smaller deals we do tend to be very much like you hand over the app and then train the owner or their team on like, you know, where any, you know, particular bits of the code are, uh, or if there's certain marketing things that you were doing or plan to do, maybe consult with them on that, but it's all done over like two weeks usually. And then maybe another two weeks is just being available for questions and then kind of done. That's like our best case deal scenario for, uh, for sellers on their side, nice and simple and easy. Yeah. I mean, it kind of highlights the importance maybe more so in an asset transfer like this than, than others to like, you know, having a good relationship with the person you're selling it to, because <laughs> like, uh, you don't want to go through like a really, really brutal negotiation where you both just like tear each other apart. And then you got to sit in two weeks and like kindly explain how your ad <laughs> campaigns work or whatever. It's like, it's not going to be all that pleasant. Right. So <laughs> have, have you seen that go South ever? Like, have you had some kind of contentious post-close or, or any horror stories on like post-close legal action or anything? Uh, not post-close legal action. Uh, we did have, uh, we have had like one seller client who, where the buyer sent them funds directly and then the seller tried to like renegotiate our commission after closing. Uh, that was an interesting one that, uh, that happened last year. Uh, wow. most of our seller clients are awesome and cool that way. But, uh, that was a scenario where they, the sellers had a, a startup, a separate startup business that they were in a bad position with. So they were just looking to save cash to fundle into their startup. But uh, the only thing we have seen is like, I'd say more it's uh, we like to make sure that if the buyer has any investors or partners that are going to be involved, that like they also get a chance to talk to the seller and the seller knows who they are. So there's no like surprise scenarios of some mystery investor or partner that jumps into the mix after closing that has expectations that uh, the seller wasn't ready to deliver on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, we're, we're at the top of the hour and uh, this has been fascinating and, and super helpful. I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of indie developers don't really think about their app as, a, as an asset. They, they see it as their baby. <laughs> but I think that's uh, uh, you know, a mistake for a lot of folks because it, there is, you know, I mean, again, I've sold three apps and, um, and it's been huge for me. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's helped you know, pay off debt and it's helped you know, put a little money away and help me sleep better at night. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of reasons to do it. So I yeah, think and there's a lot of value. Sleep. There's a lot of value locked up in the, I think Eric, you, you kind of illuminated it for me in a way. It's just that, like, there's a lot of people who can't make these things. Right? right. And that fact, like I think as indie app people, like we just kind of take for granted because we hang out on Twitter with a bunch of other people who know how to make apps and it's like not <laughs> that unique. <laughs> right. And it's a tough business. Like it's not always easy to make an app that's going to like make you a lot of money. But if you like factor in the like scarcity of the fact that like not everybody can make these things, that's can be actually be a really useful tool for you to like unlock liquidity like earlier than you would otherwise. So it's really, really eliminating. I think too, people have the mindset, like if you go into this early on, or at least catch this mindset along the way, we're like that you are building an asset that you can sell someday if you want to, you don't ever have to, but build something that is sellable. And then uh, just that kind of mindset, people can treat it more as like an investment and uh, can see people through some of the dark times, you know, the challenges of being yeah. an entrepreneur where thing, things do go south. 
you're at least investing in a building an asset. And uh, so it's, it's always good to know what your exit strategy is, right? <laughs> like maybe yeah. that's still, you know, keep it till you die, but like at least that, that's still a strategy, right? So <laughs> it's good to like think about those things. Yeah. So I feel like we kind of just uh, uh, pitched your business this whole podcast. It wasn't really <laughs> the, the intent on bringing you on, but I mean, I just, I really did have a wonderful experience uh, uh, working with you and stuff, but uh, we'll put in the show notes, um, you know, your your site is at Business Brokers and your LinkedIn is um, Eric Owens. Uh, so that, that'll all be in the show notes. Any Anything else you want to share with our uh, illustrious uh, listeners, uh, uh, subscription app business folks? Uh, no, just definitely like, you know, keep that mindset you're building an asset that uh, if you are thinking about selling, definitely whether it's us or someone else, an investment advisor, like, treat the exit process, like treat it seriously. Cause it might be, you know, a big, uh, big capital event in your life. So it could be life-changing for you. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Eric. This was fascinating. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Yeah. Thanks. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening until next time.